Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, a few years ago, Gallup conducted a poll in the United States, and they were asking for uh, respondents to rate the various occupations that we have in our country based on trustworthiness, right? So what are the jobs, the occupations that Americans see as the most honest and ethically upright, and which ones were considered, well, closer to the untrustworthy and sleazy scale of the... uh, of the, uh, the two extremes. So moneywise.com took that data. They compiled, compiled together a list of 27 occupations ranked according to their dishonesty quotient. So the top five most honest and ethical occupations, according to the survey, were nurses, military officers, medical doctors, elementary school teachers, and engineers. So kudos to all of you who fall into those top five categories. Then pharmacists, dentists, daycare providers, uh, police officers, and psychiatrists rounded out the top 10 of the most honest and ethical. Clergy, well, we were number 11, slightly ahead of chiropractors, auto mechanics, and judges. Not exactly sure if that's a good thing or not, But we were in at least the top half of the most trustworthy. Uh, Here are the bottom five of the most unethical, according to the Americans that participated in this survey. Uh, Number 23 on their list, or the fifth most untrustworthy, newspaper reporters. Are there still newspapers out today? I mean, that's true. We we get some, so there's that. Uh, Fourth most, TV reporters. Slightly worse than newspaper reporters. Third most untrustworthy were car salespeople. I get that, although I've met some really good and upright and ethical car salespeople over the years. So, Uh, Second most uh, untrustworthy, congressional lobbyists. And the number one most untrustworthy occupation, according to the Gallup poll, any guesses? Oh, attorneys, no, no. Uh, Members of Congress. Not just politicians, but members of Congress. So, welcome to the second and final week in a very short sermon series that I'm calling Parables. And we're examining two parables of Jesus. Parables were simple stories that Jesus told that had profound and deep spiritual meaning. Now, Jesus often told parables... That were quite shocking, and they caused people to seriously re-examine some of their time-honored beliefs. So today's parable fits right into that category. It's a parable that focuses on prayer. And thanks to Pastor John, who coined that catchy term, parables. Now, if we had to list the least honorable professions back in Jesus' day, well, there's little doubt that tax collectors would have unseated members of Congress for the top spot on that list. 
Tax collectors were fellow Jews who were hired by the Roman government, and they could legally extract whatever money they wanted from their neighbors as long as they could collect it. They paid the Romans the right to collect taxes from their neighbors, and once they gave the Romans the specified amount that they asked for, everything else that they gathered in, they could keep for themselves. They were like drug dealers who sucked the life out of their own community. People would have to sell their farms to pay their taxes, while these guys got filthy, stinking rich along the way, and there was nothing that anyone could do to stop them. Corruption abounded in their ranks. Many Jews saw tax collectors as traitors to their own people who were collaborating with the enemy. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up, take out your cell phones, open the church app, open your Bible app, and we'll follow along in Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse number 9. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. How's that for an opening? Like, right away. It's not like, let me tell you a story and then see what it means. No, here's where the story is aiming for, right from the start right? Geared for people who considered themselves righteous and despised others. Kenneth Bailey in Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes comments that in the ancient Greek world, that term righteousness was a general term that applied to a civilized person who observed the customs and the legal norms. So basically, they maintained an admirable standard of morality, they obeyed the law, and as we would say, they were just decent people, right? Now, in the Hebrew tradition, righteousness had a slightly different meaning. Gerhard von Rad notes that no concept in the Old Testament had a more central significance than that of righteousness. Von Rad says, it's the standard not only for man's relationship to God, but also for his relationship to his fellows. It is even the standard for man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environment. So in in Hebrew understanding, righteousness isn't just being a decent person. It's about how one relates to God and to one another, to your fellow human beings and all of creation. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in English, we use the term to pray and we talk about it uh, in terms of our private devotion, right? We're going we're gonna to take time to pray, and either by ourselves or, or, or maybe even in a group, but usually it's more private, and we say, oh, we're going to go worship when we talk about what we do as a community, right? Gathering together with a group of, of people. But in the ancient Near East, uh, to pray was used for both personal devotion and uh, public uh, communal devotion as well. And so these two are most likely on their way to some sort of public worship gathering at the temple. Kenneth Bailey mentions that uh, the only daily worship service that they had at the temple, when it wasn't a a festival or a holy day, uh, was the atonement offerings that took place twice a day, once at dawn and again at 3 p.m. Now these atonement uh, offering services, they would begin outside Uh, of the sanctuary, so inside the walls that you see there, but not in that tall building, the inner sanctum. 
And it would take, it would be outside the sanctuary at the great altar. A lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people of Israel. And then in the middle of this liturgy, the priest would go into that tall building that you see there and would offer prayers on behalf of the people. And then while he was inside, everyone who had gathered at the temple out in the courtyard, they were invited to to pray their own prayers of confession. And then when the priest came back out, he would announce that the sacrifice has been accepted in God's eyes and that the people's sins are washed away. It was even said that if a person couldn't be there in person for the atonement offering, he or she could pray wherever they were at that same time, at dawn or at 3 p.m., and as the ritual is taking place, and their sins would be forgiven as well. So there's a good chance that the two characters in our prayerable for today were on their way headed to one of these atonement service offerings, uh, atonement offering services at the temple. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all my income. Now, if we've been going to church for any amount of time in our lifetime, we have automatically come to think of Pharisees as being bad guys, right? Hypocrites, religious oppressors. I want to invite us to set that aside for today, right? This guy is different. J. Ellsworth Callis, in his wonderful book, Parables from the Backside, puts it this way. The Pharisee wasn't dishonest. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't an adulterer. You wouldn't be afraid to buy a used car from him or leave him alone in the room with your spouse. If he were your next-door neighbor, well, he might not be a barrel of laughs, but neither would he be a reason for worry. If everyone in the world were like the Pharisee, you could leave your doors unlocked at night and you wouldn't need a burglar alarm on your car. You see, the Pharisee isn't just good, but he's religious. And he's not hypocritically religious either. What you see is what you get. His outward righteousness is matched by an inward discipline. In ancient Judaism, fasting was required only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Pharisees, the religious leaders, though, they uh, chose to fast two days before and two days after each of the three main festivals every year. So the Pharisees would fast 12 days. The Israelites just required to fast once. Pharisees fasted 12 times. This guy, though, he fasts twice twice a week. That's over 100 days of fasting. I mean, talk about being an overachiever. He also tithes, he says, on everything that he has, not just on food from a harvest. That's what was specified in scriptures. No, he says he'll give a tenth of everything he has, and he's giving thanks to God while praying. I mean, what's not to like about him? This, in short, this is a really good guy. But upon closer examination, Kenneth Bailey gives us a bit more insight about what types of prayers were expected in Jesus' day. He said, in Judaism, there were three basic categories of prayers uh, in in the first century. One was confession of sin. Two was thanksgiving for the bounty that has been received. Three, petitions of intercession for yourself and for others. 
And Bailey says, if you look at the Pharisee's prayer, it doesn't really fall into any of these three categories. He's not confessing his sin. He's not thanking God for gifts that God has given him. And he's not making any requests for himself or others. So keep that in mind as we move on to our next character, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, as I mentioned before, back in Jesus' day, tax collectors were the equivalent of uh, dung on the bottom of the sandals of the Jewish community, right? Robert Capon, in his marvelous book, Parables of Grace, refers to the tax collector uh, in this parable in this way. He's a fat cat who drives a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Chevis Regal, and never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. So, in fact, the tax collector is a really bad guy. Now, here's the challenge for those of us who have heard this parable before. We have to avoid the temptation to make the Pharisee the villain and the tax collector the hero. Because when we do that, we miss the true power of this parable. No, the challenge of this parable is that it's not really about what it seems to be about. And once again, I have Robert Capon to thank for his uh, marvelous take on this important parable. He says, it's not really about humility, at least not at its core. It's more about how religion or religious expression gets in the way of our relationship or can get in the way of our relationship with God and with others. You see, it's foolish to think that there's anything at all we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can't do anything to justify ourselves before the Lord. We can't make ourselves righteous. More importantly, this parable echoes one of the central themes of the gospel, and that is faith in a God who raises the dead, which, if we're honest, is part of the reason we get so frustrated with this parable. Because remember, why is it that Jesus is telling this in the first place? We go back to verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So we've got our two characters, the good guy Pharisee, who literally is a good guy, and the bad guy tax collector. Well, how does it all end? Verse 14. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus lifts up the bad guy in this parable for us to follow. Now, he doesn't condone the tax collector's actions, right? Jesus knew that tax collectors were some of the more abusive and unjust practitioners in first century Palestine. But Jesus also does not condemn him. And, and, and we can somewhat accept this, right? Like, because this guy seems genuinely humble. So we're like, okay, we're going to give him that, right? He's not arrogant like what the Pharisee appears to be. Yet Capon says, let's try to look at this not from a human point of view, but from God's point of view. And that Jesus is saying that when it comes to being justified before God, to being righteous, the Pharisee is no better off than the tax collector. In fact, he's probably a bit worse because while both of them are losers, at least the tax collector recognizes that he's a loser. I mean, when it comes to holiness, neither of them measure up to God's standard 
of what it means to be holy. In reality, they're both dead, and their only hope is in someone who can raise the dead. Ah, but you say, is there no distinction to be made? Isn't the Pharisee somehow less further along in his death than the tax collector? I mean, can't we just give him uh, at least some credit for the goodness that he has? That would only seem fair, right? Capon says this isn't about being fair. This is about being justified before God. And when we start playing who's the worst sinner, then we miss the point of the parable. The tax collector, he knows his life is so screwed up, he's got zero chance before God. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, he's got his long list of good deeds, and he's thinking that this has got to count for something, right? But this is where he's mistaken, because God doesn't work that way. God doesn't allow us to to hold on to our lives, doing the best we can as qualification for our salvation. The Bible says salvation only comes when we die to ourselves and we allow the resurrection power of Jesus to work in us. It's not about human goodness. It's about God's grace and forgiveness and justification. It's all about Jesus. Now, the tendency for us... When we hear this parable, right, and admit this, because I'm in the same place as you are, right, we hear this and we go, that Pharisee, what a fool, right? What an idiot. How can he not see how arrogant he is judging himself to the others? Well, I dare say he's a bit more like us than we're willing to admit, because we can't see it in ourselves either. Think about it this way, right? Jesus says the tax collector goes home justified, made right with God, and the Pharisee doesn't. Well, what if this wasn't the end of the parable, right? What if, let's say we we, uh, fast-forwarded one week later, and these two characters came back to the temple to pray. Now, what would we like to see from the tax collector after he left the temple? If you were a, a spiritual advisor to the tax collector, what would you counsel him to do? Pastor John, you'd want him to change his life, right? Do some things different than what you did before. So Capon says, okay, let me throw two scenarios before you uh, to get at the heart of how it is that we are blind like the Pharisee as well. So scenario number one, tax collector comes back to the temple one week later. Not a single thing has changed in his entire life, nothing. He spent the entire week cheating others, womanizing, drinking high-priced scotch, living a life of excess, giving no heed to anyone in the community around him but himself. And now he comes to the temple, just like the week before, eyes downcast, breast smitten, God be merciful to me is his prayer, etc., etc., etc. And we must say that he earnestly believes the prayer. Now, On the basis of the parable that Jesus told, God will not change his ways any more than the tax collector did not change his wicked ways either. And once again, God would send the tax collector home justified. And Capon says, so what do you think about that? And we say, okay, once maybe, but not a second time, right? Like, we don't like this. In fact, we, may, we talked about this at our staff meeting this past week, and Pastor John got a bit riled up about this scenario, right? Pastor John was fine with God. God has the opportunity. If you want to forgive the guy, that's great. That's God's prerogative. But um, 
The tax collector now is just like the Pharisee in Pastor John's opinion. He loses his spotlighted status for us to emulate. And if you agree with Pastor John, you can commiserate with him following the service. Okay, that's scenario number one. Capon says, here's scenario number two. Tax collector comes back to the temple the following week, but he's managed to make a few changes in his lifestyle. Maybe he gave up sleeping around. He chose a, a cheaper scotch, and he gave the difference to the Heart Association this week. Uh, he even stayed home instead of partying on the weekend. So what do you think of him now? What should God do with him now? He says, if God didn't count the Pharisees' impressive list of good deeds, why should God bother with the tax collector's uh, two-bit list of improvements? Or do you want God to look on his heart, not his list, and, and commend him for his good intentions. You see, the point of this parable was that the tax collector confessed that he was dead, not that his heart was in the right place or that he was trying to be a better person. Capon says, why are we so bent on destroying the parable by sending the tax collector back to the temple with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket the following week? The honest answer is we understand this parable with our mind, but our heart has a desperate desire to believe the exact opposite, right? It's human nature. We hate this parable. I mean, the only way the tax collector is accepted by God is through his acknowledgement that he is dead without God. And it doesn't matter how good the Pharisee was because he still is dead without God. Because we are not Jesus, and we cannot justify ourselves. The question is, do we actually recognize that in our own life to be true? I love it when Capon says, Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable or improve the improvable. It's only when we come to see that we, like the tax collector, are dead without God that we can actually embrace God's amazing grace and the true power of this parable. So, how does it relate to the subject of prayer? Well, I think for starters, Jesus gives an example of how not to pray, right? Like, don't, don't be like that Pharisee, for sure. Kenneth Bailey says, informing God in a self-congratulatory manner of one virtues, that's not really prayer. It, it was, however, common in first century Judaism to pray out loud. So it could be that this Pharisee's prayer, he saw this as an excellent opportunity to offer some unsolicited ethical advice to the unrighteous around him who might not have another opportunity to observe a man of such stratospheric piety. Yeah. Don't be like that guy. Instead, one way of thinking about prayer in light of this parable is to have a humble yearning for God's amazing grace. I mean, we realize that we are dead without God, that when there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor, that God uh, will never love us any more or any less than God already does, that we have no shot of being righteous on our own, and we own that and we admit it, what a wonderful way to pray, to come to God with that recognition of need. The great medieval uh, Arabic Christian writer Ben Al-Tayyib says, the Pharisee talks as if there were no righteous person on earth as noble as he, while the tax collector prays as if there were no sinner on earth as evil as he. 
So when our prayers become an acknowledgement of just how much we need Jesus, when we get rid of any misconceptions that our actions, good or bad, have an influence on God's love for us, when we become aware of just how precious each and every one of us are in God's sight, from nurses to members of Congress, or from tax collectors to religious leaders, whatever category you want, then we come to realize just how intimate prayer can be. That we are indeed, no matter who we are, valued and loved, not for what we do or what we don't do, but because of who God is. Period. And when we come to, to before the Lord, just as we are, warts and all, when we recognize that righteousness is a gift from God and God alone, then how we pray starts to change. It's, it's not about the words that we say or where we are when we pray them. It's about that relationship with the one who created us, redeems us, and sustains us, with the one who made us, gifted us, and loves us. What an opportunity. This Thanksgiving, may each of us begin to move more into that way of praying. And all God's people said, amen.